Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to America's Best Baseball Podcast. We take you behind the scenes in and around Major League Baseball with former big league manager Kevin Kennedy and veteran baseball broadcaster Rich Herrera. This is the only weekly podcast hosted by someone like Kennedy who played, coached, and managed in pro ball. So we can take you into the manager's office for a real insider's view of baseball alongside a veteran baseball broadcaster like Herrera who has covered the game from coast to coast. So let's talk some baseball with your hosts. Here they are. The skipper Kevin Kennedy and Rich Herrera. Welcome everybody to America's Best Baseball Podcast. That is the skipper Kevin Kennedy. I am Rich Herrera. I'm ready to talk some baseball as Player Weekend arrives in Major League Baseball. You know, Kevin, the, we've worked together, and for those of you that have followed us for a while, uh, we worked at Fox together. We worked at the Rays together. We worked at SiriusXM together. We do this podcast together. Let me ask you: in all the time that you've been on the radio and uh, broadcasting. How many people have walked up to you, wanted to talk about marketing of baseball that you kind of look like? Do you have any idea what you're talking about when it comes to marketing our game? Uh, not nobody's really come up to me no? about mar- marketing our game. No, not not really. No, um, we've talked about it on shows. Is that right. what you mean, Rich? Yeah, yeah, I or, guess because. Or- you know, every time we turn around, somebody's like, baseball needs to do this to market themselves to the next yeah. generation. Everybody has an idea, I guess, is what I'm getting yeah. at. Well, Rob Dibble and I did five years together when uh, when Satellite Radio started, when it was XM, and of course now it's Sirius XM. And we used to talk about that all the time. Rob used to bring it up a lot. He thought the game was not marketed at all. At all. He didn't think our stars. Now, we opened up in 05, so we're going back 13 years. This is my 13th year. I'm a part-timer on on, uh, on on satellite radio, so I'm still there. I know you still do some things, too. But that's the only guy that I can remember doing shows with. They really talked about it frequently, about marketing our game better. Uh, but outside of that, you know, when I see kids and I work with Little League kids and, I, you know, all that, and I've talked about that before, um, they watch the game, I think, for them, um, they're so interested in so many things today that – I don't see uh, kids that I know that are 10, 11 years old. They won't sit and watch a three-and-a-half-hour game. I'll say that. Now, they won't they sit like... and watch three-and-a-half hours of anything. No, no. They're on to the next thing. No, not at all. And, I, and you know what? One thing I noticed, too, is they don't practice by themselves. They have to have a bunch of guys with them. Do you remember back in our days where I I was talking about throwing, actually, last night, how I learned how to throw? I said I was in my backyard. My dad, when he got home from work, he worked at Rocketdyne here in the San Fernando Valley when, when aerospace was big back in the 60s. And I couldn't wait for him. So when I got home from school at 3 o'clock, I would just practice on, off the, my back wall, which is about four feet high, four and a half feet high. I would draw a, a strike zone with a piece of charcoal, from <laughs> which my dad wasn't too happy about. But once he realized what I was doing, he was okay with it. And I learned how to throw correctly, just by, not because I studied mechanics, just because if I threw the ball high, I had to jump the wall and try to find the baseball in the neighbor's yard. You know what mm. I mean? So 
but we used to practice on our own. Now it's just so much different, and I'm in tune with that because of what I've told you before, my nephew, et cetera, 10 years old. But, you know, I, I try to get him to practice on his own after I do a lesson with him, and he won't. But he won't watch a game three and a half hours. Um, he won't listen to a game uh, on radio that much. So it's just no. a different era as far as marketing the game. Yet, when they go live, uh, he loves it. And I got him tickets to a game uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, when the Dodgers scored 20, I think, 21 runs against the Brewers. It was his favorite game of the year. Loved it. Where you and I might say that's just not good baseball. You know what I mean? So... I know what you're leading to, though. You're talking about today, this weekend with the uh, with the, the shirts and the nicknames, right? Yeah, I, Kevin. I think this is silly. I think it's dumb. I think it's actually insulting to people's intelligence yeah. to say that kids are going to get excited and it's 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 great for the game that we show their personalities. I went to a football game once. So, mm-hmm. growing up on the West Coast. Um, I like the Miami Hurricanes. So my two favorite teams are the USC Trojans out west and the right. Miami Hurricanes. And the first time right. I got to actually see a Hurricane game in person at the Orange Bowl, they were wearing some throwback uniform from the 1950s, and they weren't wearing the orange and green. And I remember walking away disappointed, like, ah, I just would have loved to see them play in their in their orange uniforms at home in that real traditional uniform. So right. This yeah. weekend, some kid is going to go to Dodger Stadium, Yankee Stadium, Fenway Park, wherever. I, I'm not sure who's home. I know the Dodgers are home this weekend for Players yeah. Weekend. He's going to walk in for the very first time, and he can't wait to see what. Uh, give me the the biggest Dodger star there is. Um, say, let's say he's fallen in love with Max Muncie this year, right? So it's a kid okay. new to the game, falls yep. in love with Max Muncie. Can't wait to see Max Muncie play in that classic crisp white Dodger uniform with Dodgers across the front and that red number underneath, uh, right above his stomach, uh, the number on his back, and he's going to walk in and he's going to see somebody wearing a softball uniform. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because going back to the Peter O'Malley days when he owned the ball club, I remember in Instructional League, one time we had enough what we thought were prospects to make two teams in instruction league. Normally there's one team made up of about 40 players, right? 35, 40 players of your best prospects. Well, the Dodgers, I mean, they'd invite 80 guys down there and it made two teams. O'Malley came in with the front office for the winter meetings. Now, instructional league, for people who don't know, is after the minor league season's over, starts in September, goes through really about the 1st of November, and it's uh, intense training uh, to, to help you know, all the guys improve and try to advance their skills so that they're ready for the next level and beyond to try to get them ready for the big leagues. So we had two teams. One had a blue top on and one had the, the traditional Dodger uniform on, the white uniform or gray, whatever. And he, he got, O'Malley got upset with that. And he said, whose idea was it to put a Dodger uniform with a blue top and white pants? He goes, that's not our uniform. We don't wear that. And we had to change it. We had to put everybody in uh, either whites, all whites, or in the other team in all grays, or vice versa. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it was traditional to him, and he didn't he he did not want that. And when I see even teams today when they work out, I see teams work out, and you don't know who the players are. I was down there the other day and talking to a good friend of mine, Mark Budaska, who I want to talk about a little bit on this podcast why the Cardinals are doing so well. We'll get to that in a little bit, okay, Rich? Because I know Mark, I know Mark very well. It's an interesting story. For people who listen to this podcast, talking about perseverance on how long it might take to finally get to the big leagues, and age doesn't matter. And I'll tell that story in a little bit about Mark Budaska. 
But anyway, I was talking to Mark, and uh, and I said, man, it's just different today, isn't it? He said, yeah, no, our guys have to wear all the same thing. He said, I see other teams, though. You don't know who they are when they're out there in, in uh, before the game, when the gates are open. I said, yeah, it's different. It's just changed today. And so getting back to your point, I understand what you're saying. I, I know that uh, I got a chance to wear that uniform as a manager in the minor leagues for 10 years, and I couldn't have been more proud. And if I had to put a blue top on or a different top that wasn't uh, the traditional Dodger uniform, it was, wouldn't have made me too happy, i got to tell you that. There are certain uniforms that are just classic in our game. There's some that, you know, they, they change uniforms every three minutes, and I get those teams. Yeah, for sales, right, for but marketing. There, there, there's some that are just classic, Kevin. Yeah. Um, the, the Dodger home uniform. The Yankee pinstripes, right? Right. Uh, the Boston Red Sox home uniform with that Red yep. Sox font across the front of your chest. Yeah. The, the the Tigers with the old English D, right? Yeah. Um, the Cardinals with the birds in their bats. Those are classic uniforms that never, ever, ever, ever change. I mean, maybe the Cardinals. You can go back to the seventies. They wore the blue for the um, the road uniforms instead of the the gray they wear now. But they're they're classic and they look like baseball. These look like softball uniforms. Yeah, I, I know. And I, I don't know if it draws kids out because I got to tell you, my nephew never even brought it up this weekend. You know, I got him tickets for next weekend and he never even thought about this weekend. In fact, uh, we talked last night for quite a while and he never even thought about it because I was curious if he would bring it up and he didn't even bat an eye. And he's a big baseball fan, loves baseball, but he likes to play it on, on a team a little league team with a uniform, and he likes to go to games. But other than that, he doesn't listen to it, and he doesn't watch it very much, to be honest with you. No, so. and see, and that's the other part where, I mean, going to a ball game is expensive. Uh, it, it is it is mind-numbingly expensive. And, and I wonder how much we miss the mark in our game because we make it so expensive to go. Because you take a kid to a game, they're hooked. Try to make them watch it on TV, not so much. Try to do all these other little things, not so much. I take you to the ball game, and if you catch a foul ball or anything comes around, you're hooked on this game. But I'm wondering if we're pricing ourselves out where we're not getting some kid running up to the dad when he comes home from working, says, hey, did you get two tickets to the game? Uh, Larry Bear, who's the, uh, I think he's the president of the Giants, used to tell me a story. Yes, he is. He would wait for, his dad would take a streetcar home. He, out, he I think he said he lived out in the Sunset District, which was um, out next to the water. And he would wait for his dad to get there on the streetcar, and his dad would pop off the streetcar, and he'd hold up two tickets, and they knew they were going to the game that day. You would ask <laughs> your dad, hey, can we go sit in the 50-cent nosebleed seats? There are no 50-cent nosebleed seats. I can't just pop in the way I do to a movie to see a game uh, between parking and concessions and $18, $20, $25, $30 standing room only tickets. That, that keeps kids from just casually getting to go to a few extra games a year with their dads. Well, and if you have a big family, I mean, not everybody can go. You can't. People can't afford that uh, anywhere. I mean, L.A. or anywhere for that matter. Boston, Boston Red Sox historically have had the highest ticket in Major League Baseball. Of course, they have a stadium that only holds now about thirty-five thousand or so. It used to be thirty-three, but they've added those uh, special seats out there above the left field wall, the monster. But uh, Dodger Stadium, of course, holds fifty-six thousand. So if you get four, you're, they're averaging as they're already over three million as they usually are. So that's not a problem drawing fans. But uh, I can remember, again, O'Malley would never raise the ticket prices 
for many, many years. And finally, finally, I think it was in the late 70s, he finally raised the box seat prices a little bit. Not not that much. But if you can, if you can think about this, box seats back in the 60s for a Dodger game were 350 You sat up on top, like you said, it was like 75 cents, maybe a buck and a quarter. Now, we're going back a lot of years, obviously, times change. But it took O'Malley about 30 years before he, he rose, uh, put a rise on ticket prices at any level at all. And while Larry Bear was doing exactly what you said uh, in San Francisco with a streetcar waiting for his dad, I was doing the same thing in the San Fernando Valley waiting for my dad to get home from Rocket Dine at 5 o'clock when the games used to be started at 8 o'clock, by the way, and they'd last about two hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, we could go on a weeknight, and I would say, hey, can we go down tonight? Can we go down tonight? And he said, yeah, let's do it. Let's tell Mom, and, and we'll go down. So we do that about 20 times uh, of the 80, 81 games. And usually I'd sit up top, and I guess that's the catcher and manager in me. I like to see the game from uh, the catcher standpoint, looking at the whole field rather than sitting out in the bleachers where I was looking in toward the catcher, if you know what I'm saying. And I never realized it until later on that, you know what, there's a reason I, I prefer to sit up on top rather than the bleachers. It's because I could see the whole field, and maybe that's part of the reason I was a catcher. You know, I was an eight-year-old catcher when I started, and I guess that was I've always been the guy looking at the players and not the one looking at their backs. But we'd go sit up on top, and it might have been uh, late six. It might have been a buck twenty-five, something like that. And for two of us, I mean, obviously you could you could afford that. And a and a Dodger dog and a and those old uh, chocolate frozen malts they used to sell. Oh, I love those then. with the with the wooden <laughs> spoon, right? Yeah, with the wooden spoon, you got carnation it. Yeah, that, ice cream, right? Carnation, yeah. And that made our day. I mean, that made our night. And uh, it's just it's just all changed today. Now. The great thing is, of all these ballparks, is they've got these fabulous suites that are, um, you know, some corporations, of course, buy into that. Some players buy into that, and that's all fine and good. Um, and they've got, you know, new food items everywhere and across all the stadiums in America, and, and that's all fine and good, too. So they've upgraded the venues. There's no question about that. But at the same time, when you upgrade the venues, that means they upgrade the cost of to go to a game. So if a family of four goes to a game, Rich, you probably know better than I because you've been on that side of it a little bit more. Right. But I can't even imagine what it would cost, even to go to a four, family of four to San Diego. Uh, it's got uh, we, to, did, got to be expensive. we did opening day. I want to say the cheapest ticket I could find was $45 a person. Okay. There you go. Um, yeah. And you throw in another 25 for parking. Um, you're looking at at least for a family of four, you're looking at $250. Yeah. Yeah, and that you know what? That's a lot of money. And, and you know, with the taxes in California, for crying out loud, no matter what tax bracket you're in, I mean, our, our taxes are high like New York is. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so your take-home pay out of your checks, I mean, a lot of people have to have two jobs to make it. And, and a lot of people have to have, uh, you know, their wife working. A man and a man and wife both have to work. My mom and dad both had to work, mm -hmm. back, even, back, even back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up. So... And there, you know, and again, there's there's businessmen specials, and there's 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 tickets, and there's discounts, and all the rest of that. But I just go back to, I don't know any of my friends, I don't know anybody that has their kids waiting to see if dad showed up with two tickets so they could run to the game, and it wasn't gonna it wasn't gonna cripple the family for a week. Yeah, I think today what I find, at least in my situation, is it's more of an event. Like, okay. Yep. Got them for three weeks from now or four weeks from we now on a, and, yeah. on a Sunday at one o'clock and they got tickets for four and you can invite a friend and it's a big event rather than 
spur of the moment, I'm going down to the stadium tonight like we used to do. I think exactly. that's changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know what hasn't changed is the Cardinals over the last two weeks. Let's segue into the Cardinals. Like you said, you want to talk about them. Just saw them taking on the Los Angeles Dodgers. Hey, we just wrote off the Cardinals not that long ago when they fired their manager, and look where they are now. Well, they've had the best record in the National League since uh, Mike Matheny was fired. And talking to some of the Cardinal people, I happen to know uh, a few of the coaches. A couple of them played for me. Willie McGee is there with the Cardinals as a coach, which I did not realize until I saw him on the bench uh, on Monday night. I didn't go to the game until Wednesday. Wednesday happened to be um, picture day, team photo day, and the broadcasters were invited to go take a team photo with uh, with the players. And so I was out there really early on Wednesday. And I got a chance to see, you know, Mike Maddox came up to me during BP. and We talked for a long time. Mike played for me in Albuquerque with the Dodgers. He also played for me in Boston. And Willie McGee, of course, played for me in Boston in uh, 1995, the latter half of 95. Great guy. And then I got to get to this guy. Why are the Cardinals hitting so well? What's the change in the Cardinals? Who's the guy that's had these guys in the minor leagues all the way up to the big leagues, whether it be uh, DeYoung or or Colton Wong, or Bader, or, or you name it, of some of the young guys that are the core that's going to be there for a long time. Um, it's Mark Budaska. And Mark and I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. He went to Granada Hills High School. I went to Taft High School. Uh, people that listen to this from L.A. will know what I'm talking about. But uh, nonetheless, um, opposite sides of the valley. Didn't know him in high school, but um, did know him when he became a professional. He signed out of Pierce College, went to the Oakland A's, and he played in the Billy Ball era uh, for Billy Martin with the A's in 80 and 81. Cup of coffee, didn't have a lot of at-bats. Really good left-handed hitter, left-handed thrower, really good outfielder, really good hitter. Had some power, could steal bases a whole nine yards. So he got out of the game in the early – he went to Japan, and then he got out of the game, Rich. And people don't even know who this guy is. So one, Mark and I, when I got let go by Boston in the mid-'90s, um, 1998, myself, a guy named Kenny Medlock, who was in the movie Moneyball, played Grady Fuson, who's right. a former player, been an actor for 30 years, and Mark Podaska, um, all reacquainted, and, and we're best friends. We don't see each other a lot, but we're best friends, and we formed a baseball academy out in the Valley for a while until I got a full-time broadcasting job. Then I had to kind of break away from it. Mark was still doing some teaching with Reggie Smith. Kenny was still doing some private teaching, still does. Bottom line is um, we were going to have an academy for, I mean, we really had some good concepts. We had players from Japan coming over. We were going to market them and and, uh, have them housed and and give them schooling. And we had a a Japanese partner as well. And uh, we had a real big thing going. It went on for a while, but I couldn't do it full-time anymore, and I was part owner of it. Um, and anyway, I had to break away and then Mark eventually, he wanted to get back to the pro game. And I was invited after I got let go by Boston, two things happened to me. Number one, I got a a call in January of the following year. I got let go, which was January of 97. And Tim Scanlon was his name, coordinating producer at ESPN. He said, Hey, Kevin, we mic'd you one game this year. Everything you said worked out. If you can do that and be proactive he said you got a job in broadcasting Do you want an audition i said sure at the same time i got a call from mlb international which i'd always been involved in from the very beginning right you were one of the first to go to china right i was one of the first 10 i was the first first guy to go to china professional uh, ball uh, coach and ball player not amateur professional 
O'Malley sent myself and Tim Johnson, but I was also one of the first 10 that were picked by MLB. When MLB started MLB International, they picked myself, Dave Wallace, and Joe Vavra, coaching with the Twins still. We were the first three Dodgers that were selected of those 10. And, you know, baseball wanted to expand and became become what it has become now. I mean, going to Italy, going to – I mean, we even had Russia, Russian uh, hockey players come over and I had to teach the hockey players that the goalie had to be a catcher. I mean, mm. we really, I mean, this is, that was, uh, O'Malley was a big part of this. Anyway, we expanded everywhere, all throughout the world, and now you see what, what, what's happening in Major League Baseball. We're getting players from everywhere. So that went back to, you know, the, my days in the 80s when I was an instructor and, and manager with the Dodgers. So point being, um, because of my relationship with MLB a decade or so earlier, 15 years earlier, I got a call from MLB International, and they said, will you go over to Taiwan and help open up their new major league? And so I went over there for two weeks. They wanted to have uh, two leagues, like American and National League. They only had one league at the time called Taiwan Major League. So they wanted to open up a whole new league, and I went over there to help them. And the owner of Taipei, the Taipei team, uh, was a billionaire. Wanted to buy the Dodgers Mm. uh, from O'Malley, yeah. Um, And at the same time, he offered me a three-year deal to manage over there. Well. I said, you know, thank you very much for the offer, but I got an offer in broadcasting, and I want to stay in the States because I want to manage again. And I, I think broadcasting and being visible would be a vehicle for that. Now, my attitude changed a couple of years later, and I decided I want to be a full-time broadcaster. That's Richard. when you met me and started work with me. You're like, exactly. I want to hang out with Herrera. There you go, exactly. After the 98 season, that's another podcast in itself. That, that's when I decided I want to be a full-time broadcaster. But anyway... Um, I said, but I do have somebody that I know wants to get back in the game. He's a great teacher, and I recommended Mark Badaska. Really? Yes. That's and Mark, amazing. Mark jumped on it. Mark was single. Right now, he lives in Hawaii. He does real estate in the offseason, and he's been in the minor leagues for many, many years. But first, when he started out, 1998, I believe, was his first year. He went over there for three years, came back, and then he said to me, and it was the year that A-Rod was a free agent from Seattle. He said, Kevin, I want to get back now. I'm, I've got experience coaching. I've coached over there. I've coached Taiwanese players. I've coached American players. There have been a lot of American players were playing in Taiwan even back then, trying to get back to the big leagues. Sam Horn was trying to get back to the big leagues, former Red Sox. Anyway, he was over there. Anyway, I said, Mark, you got to go to the winter meetings. That's where to go. The winter meetings this year are in Texas. A-Rod's a big free agent. It's going to be jam-packed. You go there, I guarantee you're going to run into somebody that you know from the past. It's probably running an organization or a right. farm director. And he ran into Daryl Miller, the Angels. Um, and and Daryl, at the time, was a farm director of the Angels. And they knew each other. He hired him. He got a job with the Angels. But he only was with them, I think, a year because he was an A-ball. Somebody else got promoted to Double A the next year, so Mark said, "No, I'm, I'm, I, if there's a promotion spot, I gotta go where I'm, I'm rising. I'm not gonna stay in A ball. I'm not, I'm no, I'm no kid. I mean, I think Mark is 65, 66 years old. Okay. Anyway, um, but he doesn't look like he looks like he's 45. The guy's in tremendous shape. Um, and anyway, so he got a job later on. I mean, I was gone and doing my thing and broadcasting. We still stayed in touch. But bottom line is, he was with the Red Sox for six years." He had Henry Ramirez in AA. He wanted to get to AAA with them, and it, it wasn't working out. So finally he got to the Cardinals. Bottom line is, to shorten it up, he's been with the Cardinals in AAA as a AAA hitting coach for 10 years. 
So you take those 10 years, you take a year or two with the Angels, you take six or seven with Boston, that's 20 years. And then you take the three I told you in Taiwan, that brings us up from 1997 19, to, to 2018, 2019. He finally got to the big leagues full-time as a, as a hitting coach. And he mm. told me after Taiwan, he said, Kevin, I know I can do it. I'm going to be in the big leagues as a hitting coach, and I'm going to do this as long as I can, as long as I'm healthy, until I get to the big leagues. And hopefully when I get to the big leagues, I can stay there a long time. And he didn't care how long it took. And it, it's just a story of perseverance. The guy is a great teacher, number one. And if you don't believe teachers make a difference, coaches, they do. The guy understands mechanics, but he, he understands the load, and he understands how to use the lower half, Rich. He understands all the things you and I have talked about over the years on a lot of podcasts we've done. But he also has his personality of not an old guy that says, hey, back in my day, that's the way we did it. No. He understands what's going on today. He's in tune with it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had a decade in AAA a decade as a hitting coach who does that in today's game spends 10 years at one level with one organization you can't do that unless you're really good and the problem was that mike Matheny had his good friends and he and mark wasn't knocking mike he was just saying he couldn't you know he had mabry there guys that mike knew and played with and he had uh, bill miller there and those were the two hitting coaches and mark never really got a break to get to the big leagues as long as Matheny was there. But can, when I, can, I, was, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always wonder this about, about managers and their coaching staffs because you will see guys that, you know, will go from one job to the next and they'll take their staff with them. And when you look at the staff, well, what is their connection? When you want to play Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, absolutely. It, it's somebody that I knew, somebody that I played with. It was a friend of mine. It was a roommate. So right. Um, so right. Is that the best way to put together a staff? I don't think I don't think it is. I think it's nice to have a couple of uh, guys that you really trust, you believe in, and you know are good teachers. Um, Mel Didier, uh, God rest his soul, the great scout that uh, was famous for telling Kurt Gibson what Dennis Eckersley was going to do in the World Series on a three-two count. He was that was Mel Didier. Mel Didier told me when I finally got the offer in Texas and left the Dodgers because Mel was with the Dodgers at that time. He said, "Make sure when you hire your coaches." Make sure you have some guys for sure that are loyal to you. And I, I knew what he meant. He said, he said otherwise, what's going to happen, Kevin? You're going to have guys stab you in the back because they want to climb over you, and they're going to put you down to try to get your job. So while that is true, and there's a very good point, and that did happen to me, but it actually happened to me in Boston with one of my best friends and somebody I did trust. So it doesn't have to be somebody from outside. So I learned from that that it doesn't have to be somebody you know to hire. I hired Perry Hill in Texas. I didn't even know him. But I mm. interviewed him. I interviewed him. And I just, I knew. I knew this guy could teach. I knew he was going to be loyal. I didn't, I wasn't worried about him. And to this day, uh, he's never, ever said a bad word about me. In fact, he said, if I, if I ever got a job again managing, he said this for the last 10 years, that he would jump and go with me immediately. And, mm. you know, I, I said, I'm not going to manage anymore. Thank you, though. I appreciate it, Perry. But you're the best infield coach in baseball. But yeah, I interviewed. I interviewed him. I interviewed Dave Oliver in Texas, who was a third base coach under Bobby Valentine, and I kept him. Why? Because he was the best third base coach in the American League at the time, and I didn't have a third base coach. And a third base coach is an important job. So I didn't have one of my best friends that coached third bases to give him a job. You could lose a lot of games with a bad third base coach. Just right. ask the ask the Red Sox fans about that. If you have a bad third base coach, the guys that don't know how to coach in that league against that wall and all that. So 
Um, but what I did hire were two guys that I did trust a lot. And one, I felt I needed an older veteran pitching coach. Because I was a young guy. I was in my 30s when I managed in the big leagues. And that was Claude Osteen. But the thing is, I had Claude in, in AAA rich for two years. So I knew what he could do. I knew, as a, I knew him as a player, obviously. I knew what his career was, but I knew him as a coach. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew he could help me in the big leagues. And number two, I hired Mickey Hatcher. Because I knew with his personality, he could be a buffer with the players. Because he had been in the big leagues a long time. Because you, you need personality. the different personalities, right? Exactly. I didn't want everybody like me because at the time I was really – <laughs> you I'm, were a grinder. I, I was a grinder. Yeah, I was a grinder. I really wanted to win so bad. I'd get mad and, you know, things like that. Boston, I wasn't – I didn't do the same thing as in, in Texas that I did in Boston, or vice vice versa, I should say. I, I calmed down a little bit but because I realized – Do you think you were better in Boston? Yeah, I think I was. I think I learned in Texas that um, players are not going to respond to, you know, the old ways of uh, of what Billy Martin used to do or – well, how, would you do, how would you do it today? I mean, you think about this. Well, I, I would do what I did in Boston. I, I really kept it. Uh, I, you never saw me with emotion when a player made a mistake. Uh, or or a, I, I didn't uh, bow my head or I didn't slam things. Now, inside I might have done some things, but I never, <laughs> never outside. Now, in Texas I did. And, of course, that would be a news article. Even though we played well in Texas and finished second my first year, I realized that in the big leagues, in the long haul, that's not going to work. Could Billy, Martin, players, could, could Billy Martin work it'd be today? Tough. It'd be tough. In today's today's game with who runs it and what the front offices are. In Twitter and social media and everything I, else? I, I think it'd be really tough. Yeah, I think it'd be tough. I think you'd have to make an adjustment. Yeah, I don't I don't think it would work today. And it's just like everything that in, in life, um, things change, and you have to adapt to it. It doesn't mean you can't take some of the values you believe in, but – you have to adapt with what's going on in the world today. Okay, and, so you take some of the new age managers that we have. Could they have made it in the rough and tumble time of of Billy Martin and and those type of managers? That's a great question. I think some of them would have got run over by by, by, by some players. players in the sixty and the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Could you I, imagine? I think, could I you think imagine? if you if you manage the Yankees and you were a guy that um, didn't ever say anything. Um, to a player to let him get away with everything, you would have been run over completely. No, I don't think those guys would have lasted. That's why Billy Martin was the way he was. He might have been overboard, but he was really a great manager. He was a great game manager. He was a great strategic manager, but and he won everywhere he went, but in the long haul, you didn't want to keep him long because it's just you had enough of it. He would and burn out. Course, he would burn he would you burn out. out. He would He'd grind burn you out. out. So here's, the, here's what I'm thinking. And by the way, we weren't planning on going on this podcast, but Kevin's taking me down this rabbit hole. Usually, it's me taking you down this rabbit hole. But I know, I know. <laughs> I just, but I wanted to talk about Badaska. Uh, and we'll oh get no, back no, I'm, I'm happy. I, I want to go back minute. to. But but I we'll wanna... get back to that in a minute. But I like this conversation as well about the managers because it's a very good point about what's going on today, and it's so, related to everything we're talking about, including the marketing thing. It's related to all that. So okay, so about. Billy was a grinder. He he would wear out his welcome. He would get you to where he needed to be, but he was he was too hot, and after a while, it would, it just wouldn't work. That's why he had so for, many for different too long. stops. Yeah, for too long, too hot for too long. Yeah, um, and you hot. you had some old school managers that would that you better not say boo to, and rookies are to be seen and not heard. You had guys. That's right. You you had hard you had hard fighting, hard drinking, hard charging guys. Um, you had nice guys, Sparky Anderson, one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet, but you didn't mess with Sparky. 
Um, no. There, there were lots of managers like that, but that old school manager. Now, take a Billy Martin. Um, I want to say Lou Pinella, but but I want to go a little bit further. I, we use Billy Martin because he's the one that everybody always says. Yeah. Now I stick Billy Martin on a mediocre ball club where everybody has money in their pocket and nobody's afraid of the manager. Back then, Skip, you had to work and you had to play, and the manager could affect your quality of life. Now, if the I'm manager. Had a lot more power as yeah. far as player personnel and what he, you know, well, sending a guy down or getting rid of a guy, et cetera. Oh, sure. Yeah. Now, now I got power. guys that have, you know, three, four, five, six, seven million dollars in the bank. They don't care. Uh, they've, they make, they make more money. They make four or five times as much as the manager does. They don't, they're not going to be, they're not going to listen. They're not going to be intimidated. They're not going to be cajoled. They're not going to be threatened. Could Billy Martin manage a bunch of underachieving, overpaid, uh, entitled ballplayers today. Well, you know, everybody said that about me back when I managed in 93 that, well, you're not making as much as Jose Canseco or Juan Gonzalez, who had just signed a seven-year biggest contract in history at that time, $49 million deal. And I said to the riders, I said, money's not an issue. I'm going to be myself. I came from a winning background. I'm going to apply these. Texas has never won anything anywhere. And when you get between the lines and you put the uniform on, Rich, Money's not a factor. So I, I never let that bother me. I think Billy Martin would have been the same. I don't think it would have bothered him. I think he could have uh, brought young guys together. So, yes, because I think I've always said this, too. No matter what the players are making, they might be making 10 times, 20 times more than the manager, maybe more than that. As long as you have backing of ownership, that's the key right there, backing well, and, of ownership. And, and see, that's where, but I think that's where the money take, that's where the money takes precedent because if I'm paying Kevin Kennedy a million and a half and I've got – a 20-year contract or a 10-year contract worth $100 million with player X, I already got more invested in him and I and that sunk money. So if that superstar ain't happy, he'd come after you, Kevin, and it's not that simple and easy. Well, that's that's where you you still have to be yourself, though. That's still as long as the owner backed you up. I, had, I, I suspended Juan Gonzalez. Right, right. Juan had just signed the biggest contract in baseball history, and I had, had to suspend him. Tell, tell and, that. And, You've told that story. Tell tell it. Give us to us real quick here, uh, for folks that that listen to it on the v- previous versions of the show that we've done that might not have heard it before. Well, in 1993 was my rookie year, and Juan uh, had a pulled hamstring, and he wasn't getting his train his uh, treatment. And uh, my trainer came to me one day that we were in September now, and he wasn't getting treatment. We needed him back in the lineup. He was leading the league in home runs. Griffey had tied him in home runs. And we were in second place, and we still had a chance to win the division back in 93. We ended up finishing second to the White Sox, and we were picked to finish, you know, fourth or fifth. And I said to Juan, now George Bush was the primary owner because he was the managing general partner, and Tom Grieve, of course, was a GM, and I had backing of both of them. We were in Seattle, and I, and I told Juan, um, he was supposed to come in for uh, treatment and use the pool. They used to use a, a pool treatment back in those days they still do today but anyway danny wheat was my trainer and Juan was supposed to come in in the morning and they were going to go to the the, the pool out uh, i'm not sure where they were going but there was a facility they could use in seattle and Juan was going to get the, you know advance the, the treatment on his hamstring to get back in the lineup and he'd missed a couple of treatments on this road trip so i called one in one day before we got to seattle which was his last series of that particular road trip i said Juan. I said, you're not getting your treatment. We have a chance to win the division. We need you. 
we need you in the lineup. And I said, you've got to get your treatment. I said, if it happens one more time, Juan, I'm going to suspend you. And he said, okay, I understand. I get it. I understand. And so bottom line is, happened one more time. I got a call. We were in Seattle. My trainer called me in the morning, said Juan didn't show up. I said, okay, I'm going to back. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to suspend him. So I called him in my office. I had uh, Frank White in there and Jackie Moore. I had Luis Mayaral, who, who did a lot of uh, working with uh, a lot of the Latin players to make sure, translator, to make sure there was no miscommunication. And I, and I said, and I called uh, the, the people I just told you about that ran the, ran the organization. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I got the backing of them, both of them. And they said, go do what you have to do. No problem. So I called Juan in. I said, Juan, I told you the other day. I said, if it happens one more time, I said, I'm going to suspend you. So I, I thank you very much for your hundred and for your 42 home runs. Uh, and uh, we'll take it the, the last few weeks of the season here by ourselves because you don't want to get back in the lineup anyway. And he said to me, okay, Mayvoy. And he walked out the door. Mayvoy, meaning I'm going. I said, there's a ticket for you to get back to Puerto Rico and go back to the hotel Go back to the hotel, get your stuff, and we'll see you later. We'll take it the rest of the way. We had three weeks to go. That's exactly what he said. Well, the door didn't hit him in the in the tail, <laughs> and, he, and, he turned, and he walked back in. And from there, I don't want to get too much into what he did, but he basically broke down, right? I in mean, a good in a in a good right. way. I mean, there was a, he. Hey, listen, he pushed to see uh, how what the new sheriff yeah. was going to be like, and the new sheriff called him out, and, okay, better yeah. better backtrack and, a little bit here, kids. And Juan's a great guy. I always felt he was a great guy. He had a lot of things going on when he made that money. He had family over there. People were not family necessarily, but people, you know how these entourages, hangers-on, guys right. like that, and he was giving money to people, his family, and giving money to friends to help him, you know, and help them, I mean. And, you know, he was going through a lot, you know, his personal situations with his with his uh, family, his immediate family, et cetera. I want to get into all that, but I knew that. And that's important for every manager to know about players, what, what they're going through. And I knew that. But I also knew we had a responsibility once we got to the ballpark. And I had to represent the organization. And, and we needed Juan to represent. And it turns out that Juan, after that, did exactly what we asked him to do. He was there every morning, got his treatment, got the leg healed up, finished the last two weeks, Hit a couple more home runs. I think he ended up tied with Griffey for home runs that year in 1993. I know he was number one. I think Griffey tied him, though. But point being, Richie, I had to do that. If I wouldn't have done that, I would have lost the whole ball club. And then I probably would have Because they would have watched you walk. They would have watched him walk all over you, and you were done. Yeah, Uh, so I I wasn't doing that to be a tough guy. I was doing that because that I represented the organization. Well, I I, I wasn't even worried about me. I was worried about the organization. I said, this is what I said I'm going to do. If I don't back that up, then my words mean nothing. Yep. And once I did that, I never had a problem in the big leagues again. Um, go back to the Cardinals real quick, because I led you down this rabbit hole. I didn't get to anything we wanted to talk about, so let's finish up with the Cardinals. Well, well, Budaska, uh, I already mentioned how, what a great hitting coach he is, but when he came up, he's helped Osuna with certain things. I, don't, I, I won't get into all the technical things, but as we've talked about technique a lot on, the, on this show, but... He's made a difference with all these guys, with, with Martinez, Jose Martinez, with uh, Osuna. Uh, still working on Bader, not to chase the slider as much, but he does it in a real fun way. And I said to Mark the other day, I said, I said, you're still in great shape. You get out there and swing the bat and show him. He goes, no, I don't get out there and hit batting practice. He said, but I do 
I, I do use the uh, the T once in a while with him, and I backspin a few, and I I could still do that pretty well. <laughs> and he said, I said, well, and he said the player's eyes open up and go, whoa, wow, this guy could hit, because they you know they've known him for a long time. And he told me last year that guys from other organizations still call him, mm. like David Freeze, right, Pascott, Piscotti, guys like that still call him. Now I'm not saying now, I'm not saying tampering or anything, but no, but you'll go back and ask somebody that you worked with before. For some yeah. tips and advice, David Freeze and he are very close, and and he had a lot to do with what went on um, in those world that World Series team that they won when David Freeze hit those big. Mark Badaska was his his mentor. That was his guy. So people may not know that they may think it was the big league guy, but it was Mark Badaska. So those guys never get enough credit. Mark will never look for it. And I said, "You're the word." I said, "Mark, we're doing a podcast. I'm going to be talking about you. I've talked about you on satellite radio. The word's going to be out about you." <laughs> And he said, no, don't do it. I oh, said, no. listen, I, hey, Mark, I said, sorry. I there's, a, Mark, there's a lot of people inside the game that listen to this podcast. And, sorry. And, and the reason it's a great story, it's for anybody out there, a guy working in the minor leagues. Look at look at the two managers, St. Louis and Atlanta, that have been managing or coaching forever in the minor leagues and finally got their opportunities. And look yeah. where both those teams are at. They're both in, uh, battling for first place. Atlanta's in first place as we speak, and St. Louis is getting there. And look at, and even I talk about guys that like the Bannister managing in, in Texas. He spent years, years, years managing in, in Pittsburgh in the minor leagues. Probably never thought he'd get there, but had passion for it and finally got an opportunity. Guys like that, hitting coaches, if you're a hitting coach or a pitching coach in the minor leagues, you might, and you have perseverance. People finally may recognize your time. It's time. There's a reason that our minor league guys, when they go back down to the minors, like Colton Wong or whoever, start hitting again, and then they get back up to the big leagues, and for some reason they don't hit. It's Mark Badaska. And even even John Rooney told me that. I ran into John the other day. Oh, you day. saw John. Okay. I just yeah, talked, and to, he, I and talked he told to him yesterday. Me, and he told me, by the way, he talks to you all the time. And, <laughs> yeah. And, does, and he says, I tell Rich every time because he knows me well. We, we work together back in the All-Star games and yeah, all that. He's yeah. a great guy. Because I always tell him I love your stuff, and I always tell Rich, make sure you say hello. Does he do that? I said, yeah, of course he does. <laughs> but John told me, he goes, it's, it's, it's no secret. And he, this was unsolicited. He said, it's no secret why when all these guys kept going back down to the minor leagues over the years that they get better in AAA, and then they come back up, and they're, they're good for a long time, and then until sometimes they get into a slump, and then they're changed again. Mm. He says, this is Mark Podaska, and everybody knew that, and that's finally why he got the chance. That's because awesome. he's not a he's not a popular name. He's not a guy that just retired, you know, five years ago, and now he's got a big league coaching job. He's a guy from the eighties. The grinded and grinded and grinded. Thank you very much. So it's just a, a great story, and I thought it needed to be told. I love that. Hey, two good stories this week. We told the story uh, last last episode about uh, Davis and the kid uh, from Make a Wish and the home run, Chris which, Davis, is, yeah, phenomenal which story. turned into yeah. a great story. And I love this one about Mark. So I think we'll just leave it right there for the weekend. Let's do it. All Absolutely. Right. That's going to do Appreciate it for our it. podcast for today. Don't forget, you can find Kevin. Ke oh, wait a minute, Kevin. I don't, nope, I, we can't leave yet. I'm sorry. All right, what do we got? You got something? Uh, there, yeah, want? there's one thing. Uh, you, we, I said that we would talk about – somebody had sent you a tweet. And, and by the way, because when I, when I tell everybody you can find us on Twitter, literally, if you tweet to us, we will tweet back to you. Kevin Kennedy, MLB. Mine is RBI Rich, but we have the one guy that tweeted to you, Kevin – Right, and I got it right here, I think. I kept it. I favored it. I retweeted it. Uh, oh, this is from Dodger Buzzy. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I think I think I've retweeted. Uh, yeah. I've responded so said, to Dodger can, Buzzy before. Yeah. Can you day. please discuss the Bach rule in an upcoming podcast? I followed MLB my whole life and still don't understand. At the end of tonight's Dodger Mariners game, once a pitcher comes to a set with his hands, uh, he can't move them at all until he steps off with the back foot. Last night, uh, Floro moved his hands down lower after he was set. Right before he stepped off the rubber, that's a balk. JT also made a, f- a fake move as if there was a pickoff attempt on Mabin in the third. Then Mabin right. made a quick move. Uh, it appeared as if it confused Floro. With that, when's that? Uh, that's when he his hands. Anyway, I, I lost his the rest hands, of it. That's when his hands dropped right. before he stepped off. So you got it. Once your hands come set at the belt or wherever you set them. Once they come set and there's a stop there, you cannot move those unless you step off with your back foot. So and the rule what, is the rule is you cannot deceive the runner. You can't deceive the runner, and it, it's it's some guys do that on purpose because if you do that, you know the runner might get picked off. You throw his timing off. Yeah, you throw his timing off, and if you there's a Bach move you can use going to first base with your feet, and I won't get into that today. It's a long story, but point being. Um, you have to step the right way with your feet toward first base. If you don't, it's a balk because the runners look at the back foot. The runners will look at the shoulder to steal a base. They'll look at the back foot. they look at the lead foot. Uh, different runners, base stealers, do different things. Maury Wills like to look at the front shoulder. And so when you come set, for example, uh, as a pitcher, and that front shoulder tucks in, meaning he's going toward home plate, you can't. You can't open that shoulder up and then tuck it in and fool him. Because if he opens that left shoulder up, that means he's going to first base. So once you set as a pitcher, you either are going to make a motion towards home or you're going to make a motion towards first. You can't start to first and move and then throw a home or start uh, move towards home and then throw to first. That's where you get into the gym. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of guys will use those feet. They'll do a, a Bach move and do it really quickly. I haven't seen too many guys do it lately, but they'll do it really quickly. And uh, the runner will watch the feet, and they'll go, okay, if he picks up his uh, back foot, he's got to go home. Mm. Uh, I've heard or, that before uh, in a broadcast. Or is his front foot. I mean, he's, you know, it's, it's, it's really tricky. I have to explain it. I, I don't have enough time today, but I will next time on, on the feet. It's really interesting. All right, so we'll mark that for the podcast for next week. But I told, I, I told Dodger Buzzy that we would address it. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. there you go. All right, yeah. that's it for the podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for joining us for America's Best Baseball Podcast. Our podcast was produced by Braden Suppernant. Find us on Facebook at America's Best Baseball Podcast. You can find Kevin at Kevin Kennedy MLB on Twitter, and you can find Rich on Twitter at RBI Rich. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.